right, and welcome to the ESA cast. I'm your host, Reed. I'm here with my co-host, Rad. Hello. It's been a little while, buddy, but we are back with another episode. Rad, how you been? I've been doing all right, man. How have you been? I've been good. It's been a busy summer. I know that we've been away for a little bit, but we're back today, and we've got a great guest for our show. Rad, tell me a little bit about who we got coming on. So today we have Chris Avalone. Now, I was really thrilled to get a chance to interview him because uh, he has been making role-playing games, writing them, designing them, narrative designing them for over 20 years, worked on the original Planescape, Icewind Dales, many of the Infinity Engine games, uh, re- recently has worked on um, you know games like Prey for, for larger AAA studios. So he's been uh, in the video game industry for a long time. We have a really great conversation with him. We asked him all sorts of fun stuff. I, so it's, it was a really good conversation. And for people who aren't really in the know about game creators and game writers, Chris Havilland is pretty legendary. He's worked on some yeah. of game, some games that you will see in the top 10 games of all time, like Planescape Torment. So this is a pretty big name for games writing and game uh, production. Yeah, we were really excited to uh, to have a chance to talk with him. Yeah, he told us a lot of great stories about what it was like to work on CRPGs, how you approach making a CRPG for a casual audience and for an experienced uh, D&D and CRPG audience, as well as sort of his thoughts on trends in the industry. So we've got that coming up for you right now. Stick around, give it a listen, and we'll be back for some news and a little banter about how I'm playing Fortnite with my dad. Right, everyone, and welcome to the ESA Cast interview portion. We are here with Chris Avalone. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for thank you for inviting me. It's been a pl- it's a pleasure. Yeah, we are really happy to have you on here. You have a storied career in the video game industry. We have hopefully some really good questions we'd like to put to you, and and uh, you know maybe have a good conversation. And so, just real briefly, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now and what your, your role is? I know you have a game coming out in September, Pathfinder. Yeah, um, Pathfinder Kingmaker is coming out on September 25th, and uh, the, it's based on the, uh, the the Pathfinder franchise from Paizo. Uh, I'm also currently working uh, with Ghost Story Games on an unannounced title, and um, also with uh, Techland on uh, the sequel to Dying Light, which is a blast. <laughs> Gotcha. So getting right into it, I thought I'd just kind of do the basic question is how would you describe your job to people who don't know anything about video games? Well, I tried to do this uh, with my mother <laughs> uh, because uh, her knowledge of video games is, uh, is very slight. She uh, basically knew what a dungeon master was because of all the games I'd run in my, in my youth. So what I describe it to her as was I'm basically my job is basically to be a virtual game master for thousands of people and uh, sort of run a game by remote. But once it starts, I don't have much control over which way the player goes within what I've already designed. So and if, I guess if the audience doesn't know what a, what, a, what a dungeon master or game master is, there's probably not a lot I could do to, <laughs> to help with that, except, you know, a game master is just kind of someone who narrates a game of make-believe where he presents a scenario and then the results are kind of decided by a roll of the dice. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that would be hard to explain. Um, I don't think that I could even explain my job to my parents. So <laughs> I don't, I don't think they would get it. Um, so you mentioned your, you mentioned your youth. Uh, one of the things I came across, I've actually known this for a while, but I, I wanted to bring it up for the interview was that you were in the, the New York times back in the year 2000. I think it was August 27th, 2000, which is close enough to 18 years ago. So we'll let that sink in for a second, but, um, they were covering Planescape Torment, which to me was very interesting because almost no mainstream press outlets at the time had anything nice to say about video games when they were talking about them. They were not being nice. Can you tell me what it was like to, you know, sort of have a conversation with a reporter or an editorial uh, writer about video games in the year 2000? And, and did anything change after that for you? Uh, no, that was, uh, and I agree with you, like, no, none of the mainstream press was really covering much about video games. 
So to have that opportunity was really surprising. Um, actually, the whole reception for Planescape Torment was kind of surprising. I was worried that was the job that would end my career. Um, but then it came out, and then uh, the reception was really good. The sales, the sales weren't terribly great, but I'm still very, very proud of it. Um, but having that conversation, yeah, the fact that someone was willing to, hey, well, you seem to have like you know explored, uh, you know, you know, various themes in this game, and uh, you know the amount of role playing opportunities seems pretty strong. And uh, you know the combat system may suck, but uh, <laughs> the uh, but overall, yeah, no, the uh, it was a surprising opportunity, and uh, yeah, it was a definitely a much uh, unusual thing to happen at the time for just because of what you're saying. Not not many mainstream press would really go near video games. So there's there's been a lot written about Planescape, and uh, it's interesting to hear you say that you were worried that that was you know that game was going to be it. Now, as a fan of that game, played it through several times, I can see why you would think that because it was really non-traditional. You know, I I think the running count is like there's two swords in the entire game, and for someone who was used to fantasy role-playing games, that might have been a shock. Can you can you go into that a little bit for us? Like, what what specifically were you worried about? Was it the alienness of the setting? or... Yeah, you know, I think you nailed it. It's just that um, it, it's an unfortunate uh, trend that I've noticed that people sort of like to play games they're somewhat comfortable with or they can wrap their heads around. And Planescape as a genre is something that tries to purposely defy those trends. So it ends up sort of challenging anyone who wants to get into it by going, hey, you're going to find yourself in a completely different place, which sometimes players don't want to be in a completely different place. Like they want to go to the Forgotten Realms. They want to do traditional fantasy. But Planescape was very much not about that. And then um, to compound that, we took the Planescape setting, which was already alien, and then we started doing um, additional ways to distance ourselves, like, you know, no halflings, no dwarves, keep swords to a minimum, like make sure rats are portrayed as some of the most dangerous creatures in the game. All these things weren't things that RPGs generally did. And um, I was a little worried that we'd sort of gotten so far off track that no one would be would want to to give it a try. And then the, the marketing efforts didn't help much either because I think the, the mar- marketing also embraced the alienness of the setting. So even like the box and the presentation was somewhat, you know, a little bit jolting and shocking. Like it, it would make you see the game on store shelves, but I don't know if it would actually make you want to pick it up and purchase it and risk money on it. I can actually speak from experience about that. So I'm a little bit of like a late bloomer to the CRPG world. It's kind of thanks to Rad. And growing up, I was a big fan of the isometric RPG games like Diablo. And I remember seeing Planescape Torment on the shelves and having no idea what it was. But then a year, two years later, a year later, buying Icewind Dale, which uh, you had worked on. And that was kind of considered to be a like not a rival, but it was coming out around the same time as Diablo 2. And I looked at it. I saw saw the isometric view in the party and I thought, oh, this is a Diablo type game. And I got it and I had no idea I was playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, for the longest time. I got through it and it was years later that I realized I'd been playing like a D&D style game. Is there kind of concern about when you're making these games, people like me who are, you know, you're, you're core gamers, but who aren't really as clued into this style of game who may come or may not come or, you know, might need to be catered to or might not be catered to? Yeah, I mean, always an aspect of the business is that it is a business. And ideally, like you want to sell games that are not only uh, critically received well, but they also sell very well. And sometimes those those are two different things. Um, and with Icewind Dale, it's interesting that you, you bring that up. That was a conscious choice to break away from some of the, um, the harder RPG aspects like Baldur's Gate and uh, Torment and try to create something lighter for the players and just do a bunch of dungeon crawls. I think as far as that Infinity Engine games run, it was probably the one that tried to innovate the least. And that was a slightly disappointing at the end of Black Isle Studios run because we'd done all these other RPGs up to this point where they were trying to break new ground. Icewood Dale was sort of like, well, we'll just take a step back, you know, because the company's in trouble and we need to get the stuff out. <laughs> I, you know, I, I like Icewind Dale for that very reason. It feels like a lazy dungeon Dungeons and Dragons game on a, on a lazy Sunday, I should say. It feels like a really good, solid D&D sort of like second edition old school adventure that you play on a rainy Sunday with your friends. That's actually what I really liked about it. <laughs> Yeah, and um, you know, one thing I will say that it really, uh, really topped the bar on uh, is that the 
the locations the artists did for that game were absolutely beautiful. Like I still remember the um, the frozen museum they had at Icewind Dale with like all the exhibits still frozen in ice. And that location, like sure you're going through a dungeon, but geez, it's like you know it's like walking across a painting, and it's it's just absolutely beautiful to take in. So the artists really did a fantastic job bringing those locations to life. I and I mean it, we should probably say this: all of the art for uh, Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate Two, Icewind Dale, Planescape, Fallout One and Two, all of those Infinity Engine games, or even sort of the cousins of the Infinity Engine games, those two D backgrounds will go down in history as some of the coolest art ever generated for computer games, in my opinion. And even with all of the sort of graphical advances we've made in the years intervening, that stuff still is just like the coolest. I love all that art. Yeah, you know, it's always a trade-off, too, because with uh, Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, like, it was very much a tile-based system, and you could get some really cool maps out of it, and you had a lot of versatility, but um, the the sort of painting-style maps that were in the Icewind Dale, Baldur's Gate, uh, Torment, those those allowed so much more room for freedom of, freedom of expression, even though they took longer uh, to build and make. I think the effort was worth it, even, even though the Fallout maps were cool, too. So one question I thought I'd want to get to is also because it's a game that uh, it's got kind of cult following and I'm a big fan of it, but it was Alpha Protocol. And I wanted to ask about what sort of other sorts of genres or styles of games or styles of uh, RPG would you like to work on? I remember Alpha Protocol kind of playing a lit like D&D, but being a spy game. And I really loved that. And, you know, it had its bugs when it came out and such, but I still actually will load it up on Steam every now and then because I just really enjoy the different take of an RPG game in a spy thriller. And I was just curious if there's ever been a genre you'd like to revisit or if that's something you'd like to try again. Well, um, well, first of all, thanks for playing off a of protocol. <laughs> not, many, <laughs> not many people did. Uh, that was kind of an unusual situation because uh, 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 two of the company owners sort of championed a, uh, an espionage-style RPG. Because basically uh, the publisher, Sega, said, hey, you know what? Uh, we just want an RPG. Like, what can you guys uh, provide for us? So the proposal from, from the owners uh, was, hey, well, we'd like, to, we'd like to do an espionage RPG very cinematic um, it turned out the the two of them couldn't remain on the project to keep the vision going so it sort of got passed around a little bit and sort of got a little bit schizophrenic as a result um, the I, I did enjoy working on it like I watched a lot of 24 <laughs> and a lot a lot, lot of James Bond um, and I and I really liked the um, the time dialogue system we had a really fun time with that just because um, we do these focus tests where, where literally they'd put these brainwave uh, sensors on people's heads. And what they discovered in Alpha Protocol was the dialogue sequence were, was causing so much uh, adrenaline spikes and stress as a combat sequence did. We thought that was really cool. We were, we were like, oh, wow, man, <laughs> we're really panicking people when they get into dialogues. That's that's exactly what 24 does. That's perfect. Um, so but in terms of other genres, uh, you know, I think I've uh, been able to reach out and work on just about anything that I'm interested in. So I'm actually really happy about that. Like, uh, I really like working on Divinity Original Sin 2. So I got my uh, my turn-based and my fantasy fix uh, at once. Um, Into the Breach was great to work on. Um, that was also turn-based, and I played a lot of it. Uh, I haven't done a lot of roguelike games. Like, I did FTL Advanced Edition, but Into the Breach was my second um, uh, work in that genre. And I really liked uh, doing the writing for that. But uh, I, I'm always up for uh, uh, more sci-fi titles. I like urban fantasy. Um, you know, I like uh, you know alternative history, different time periods. Sky, sky's the limit. If uh, if something interests me, usually I can reach out. Or surprisingly, sometimes amazing opportunities will show up in the inbox, and I'm like, what? And then it's all full speed ahead. <laughs> And you listed off just a great list of games that you've worked on. A lot of those games people have on their favorites list or are considered some of the best RPGs of the past 10 years or such. For you, having been in the industry this long, what's the project you're most proud of? That is a tough question. Um, so I'm sort of I'm proud of them all for different reasons, because either uh, something I learned from it or uh, I really liked a part of the design or writing um, I did for that game or that others did for that game. Uh, I think the one I enjoyed playing the most 
uh, at least in recent times, was it was really hard to do bug testing on Into the Breach uh, for the narrative work because I'd start missions and then I'd start getting lost in the missions and just mm-hmm. having a good time. And like two or three hours would go by. And I'm like, I really am supposed to be testing all the death lines for this one particular character, but I really want to beat the enemies on this level <laughs> and get this challenge. So that I, I, I was proud of how much fun that game was. Uh, after it came out, I got a lot of uh, uh, messages from friends who were like, man, everybody at work is playing this during their lunch hour. And it was a, it was like a perfect lunch hour game. Like, yeah, you know, you could you know, play a mission in like five to 10 minutes and then you're making rapid progress. And it's like, you know, murder chess. It's, you know, and, and I was proud of the reception it got. I was proud to work on it. And I thought it turned out really well. And I just had a blast playing it. Like I put in so many hours playing that game. You know, as far as excuses for not getting your work done, I was playing the game is a pretty good excuse. So I don't think anybody <laughs> could hold that against you. Um, what Reed was just asking about genres. I'm curious about something. Are there any genres or IPs or franchises that have that are hanging around that you're just like, wow, how have they not made a good game in this genre? I'll give you an example. I noticed that you, I mean, you worked on a Star Trek game. I would probably go nuts for a really good Star Trek RPG, you know, almost like a single player RPG. Kind of amazed that I haven't seen one in a long time, if ever, as I rack my brain. Is there anything like that out there that you think, man, why has no one made a game out of this franchise yet? Yeah, Star Trek is a, a very underused genre. Uh, I have no idea why that is. Um, I don't know whether like there's franchise or uh, licensor challenges. I know that even back at Interplay, um, it was sometimes really hard to get through some aspects of the approval process when we were doing uh, like Starfleet Academy and then uh, Secret of Vulcan Fury, which unfor- the, la- the latter one, unfortunately, never came to fruition. Um, but yeah, I know I agree. Like Star Trek's one of those things you're like, huh? What? what um but other ones uh i'm still surprised there hasn't been a Baldur's gate 3 yet um i mean it's been a long time uh i was initially surprised that there wasn't a pathfinder computer rpg like uh at all that 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 really surprised me but then uh owlcat games uh gave me a call and said hey now we're doing one i'm like yay because i'm I'm a big pathfinder fan Uh, i'm a little I'm not sure how to feel about the next one in my head. It's like, I feel like there's more to do with Marvel superheroes, especially in the RPG space. But I'm wondering if perhaps somehow they just, you know, the franchise holder just consider RPGs plus Marvel superheroes not to be something that would generate as much income as another genre type game in that universe. But I think I think that would be really cool. Um I don't know. Um, Doctor Who would be a, would be an interesting type of game. I'm not really sure what type of game that would exactly be, but that you know that's another uh, unused franchise. There's there's a whole bunch. So I think you, you kind of rattled off a great list of the some of the best franchises out there to make games for. But you yourself have gotten to work on some pretty big franchises such as Star Wars yourself, in addition to the Forgotten Realms. How much pressure is there with having say the Star Wars franchise to work with and having to create an original story out? Of that or create an original story out of R.A. Salvatore's uh, writing. Is there? Do you feel a lot of pressure when that's kind of the task you've been given? Yes, um, because as a, a game developer that's upholding a franchise, whether it's um, a South Park or Fallout, or in, in this, you know, we'll use Star Wars as an example. Um, you want to be very respectful of the franchise that you're de- designing the game for, and that includes the writing and the lore. So, when we got the opportunity to do Star Wars. Um, Initially, I had some reservations because I'm like, oh, well, you know, Star Wars, you know, at the time wasn't really known for, you know, strong, strong storylines. There was, you know, the very black and white morality. Um, So I was like, okay, well, but there's other aspects about Star Wars that really shine. Like, you know, and, you know, I I rewatched the old movies and, you know, especially Empire Strikes Back. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, there's the good space opera themes here that I, you know, loved as a kid and I still love. you know, uh, I, some of the character arcs are, are actually are, you know, are pretty good. Uh, and then, 
there's still a lot to, to love about the series. So I focused on that. And then I tried to absorb as much material from games, books, uh, you know, other other um, TV productions like, you know, even Star Wars Christmas special Ewoks. Like I watched all that stuff. Um, and I will say the Clone Wars five minute shorts they did with the Samurai Jack guys like that. Those were those really opened my eyes to, hey, wait a minute, you can focus on certain aspects of Star Wars and make some really cool stuff. So all this stuff ends up getting processed in your head. And the reason you do it is you don't want to repeat a story that's already been told. And, and if you do it consciously, you have to make it better than the previous story or tell something different that makes it, um, that sets it apart. Uh, so after, after processing all this information, um, I was left with like, hey, there's some parts about Star Wars that really resonate with me. And also I have a lot of questions. Why not make that more of the theme of the game since that's what I seem to be gravitating to. And the, and the nice thing is once you've absorbed all that information about the franchise, you can sp- you you can speak pretty with you can speak with a lot of authority to the franchise holders and they start trusting your opinions more and more because obviously you know what you know what you're talking about and you know with Knights of the Republic 2 um, like we we didn't get very many comments on the storyline at all. I think we got like five or six comments over the over the course of the game, and some of them were really minor, like uh, you know, at Rand's name is spelled wrong, spelled wrong, or you know, that Deveronian's horns are too long. But um, but ideally, uh, getting immersed in the franchise, knowing it in and out, and being able to speak to it uh, really carries a lot of weight with getting a game uh, approved by by someone else holding the reins. The the very last thing I'll say about it is. Um, what was intimidating was we had to write a story for Knights of the Republic 2 without knowing what the first game story was, which was crazy. And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, now I have to guess <laughs> what it might be since LucasArts doesn't want to share this right now. So how did that come and about? Were they just, was it in indive- were both games in development at the same time or was it finishing up and they just still weren't going to release anything because of the you know tentative nature of the story and wanting to keep it secret? Or how did that kind of come well, about? Well, it was pretty, it's pretty locked down. I think that they just didn't want to share it until it was released. So I, it, it was probably, I think, I think it was like about two or three months before it was going to be on shelves. So a lot of it was pretty much locked down, but they couldn't pass along a build to us. That I, there might have some, been some contractual uh, stuff that still needed to be signed to make sure everything was protected and the game wouldn't get leaked and stuff like that. The But when that game came out, like that was like a nuclear warhead. Because I'm like, wow, they did all this cool stuff and it's a really great story and oh my god our story sucks <laughs> and also like it sets all these expectations for what the second game should do which we've done none of and then uh so then there was some rapid um, rapid refiguring of a lot of locations well i'd say you and, guys uh, came out you know you, you can't you did just fine at the end of it all so yeah it's gonna ask some characters carry over from the first game so did you know they were gonna carry over but you had no idea like what their purpose of being in the second game would be or did you end up like playing getting the first game comes out and getting the story and being like oh now we got to write these characters into the story because they survived or they're much bigger than we imagined and people want them to come over or something like that well well two of two of uh, them which seems safe uh, and all I had to go on was the website description for them Um, I knew that T3M4 was safe and I'm like and also T3 should carry over because R2 is always running around doing stuff in in the movies that's thematically appropriate and then HK-47 just seemed interesting. And I'm like, oh, I would love to write a character like that. I had, I had no idea what his tone would be. But I'm like, yeah, we can bring him in. Candorous uh, <laughs> was a later edition where we're like, oh, wow, you know, it would be really cool for him to, like, you know, take charge of all the Mandalorians and show some progression there. But those, uh, but T3 and HK-47 were the two easy wins. Then Candorous came a little bit later. So, so I'm looking at, and I'm cribbing from your Wikipedia page, so if any of this is wrong. Um, I apologize. <laughs> it is. But there's there's a lot. Um, so for a couple of games, you were lead designer and writer. And it looks like the last time that you did that was 2010. And I'm wondering if that's just a coincidence or is game development now so sort of so big and complicated that you just can't do both anymore the way you want to do them? 
Uh, that's a good question. So there's a danger in wearing too many hats, uh, especially for a bigger title. Um, some of the more recent games I've worked on, I've sort of been technically lead writer, but because a lot of the vision and lore is supplied by the uh, the main development team, it's a little uncomfortable to call yourself lead writer. So I usually just call myself writer, even though I'm the only one on the game. Um, so unless it's a small endeavor like the fallout new vegas uh dlc packs where okay well we have a uh, you know a team about 20 25 folks maybe 30 at times with qa um that's a little bit easier for you to both be a project director um and like a lead writer in larger games especially in triple a the idea of a project director or lead writer doing a lot of writing versus reviewing, fixing, uh, attending meetings, presenting stuff, uh, it goes drastically down. So it, it all depends on the size of the project and uh, how much writing and story is actually involved with the project. But yeah, it is a very difficult thing to do. And it's even worse if you try and juggle three or more titles because you can end up creating like choke points in development. We're like, hey, well, we're waiting for the, you know, the, the, the lead designer to finish X, Y, and Z, but he's too busy writing the item descriptions or the characters for this area, so he can't get those to us. And that's what you have to watch out for. You have to make sure that if you do take on those multiple roles, you're not being a blocker for anybody else in the development team. And also, uh, sorry, this is probably this will probably boring you guys to tears. But the um, the other thing to watch out for is because they start getting focused on more content as a writer versus being a lead or a project director. A lead or a project director is lucky because they have the authority to change things about the game that aren't playing well without any bullshit. Like, if the project director comes in and goes, hey, I was playing the game yesterday and the following combat mechanics don't work for me. And whoever the developer responsible for the combat mechanics goes, well, that'd be really difficult to change. The project director is the one who can say, well, tough, like you need to change it because I have the authority to make you do that. And it's for the betterment of the project, but if the project director or lead designer, whoever is too busy writing item descriptions, that kind of effective change is not going to happen because they're not playing the game and reviewing all the all the design elements they should be. So at this stage in your career, do you have a preference? Do you prefer to just be sort of the writer, gun for hire? Do you want to be uh, a lead designer? Do you want to do both? Or are you taking it you know, one day at a time? Um, I usually uh, take it based on the project. Like I, I like doing smaller projects that still have a lot of interesting story elements. And, the, and the, the story elements don't have to be writing. Like it can be just like, hey, are you fleshing out the lore? Are you helping flesh out the visuals or the, the look of this culture? And is that telling the story versus, you know, a million words in an RPG? Um, so it, it sort of depends on the project. I really do like uh, freelancing. Um, game development is usually very fluid from day to day, even with a full-time job. But with freelancing, the amount of new tool sets, new teams, new production methodologies, new genres, um, and new approaches to telling stories across all those different spectrums, it's been a fantastic learning experience. In fact, I think I've worked on more games in the past three years than I think I worked on the 10 years previous, maybe even the 15 year previous. So the range of titles I get to work on, on stuff that I'm really excited about, like that's been great. Yeah, and just looking through it, it's just you have about like two to three games, sometimes yeah, two to three games coming out a year or working on each year, so you're busy. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, you're a veteran of the Fallout series, and at E3 this year, we saw Fallout 76 get announced, which from what we understand is going to be a fall, full Fallout title, but with multiplayer online. I know multiplayer has been a big part of games like Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and Neverwinter Nights. You can play them online. But the idea of Fallout being, you know, a sing what is essentially a single player RPG turning into this big mini MMO side tile game. Do you think that's going to be like a new thing for uh, RPGs going forward? Do you think that's the path forward is having this sort of optional uh, a multiplayer or built into it or building an RPG of multiplayer in mind, given where the industry's headed? Well, um, I don't have solid metrics to back this up, but I think one reason um, Definity Original Sin 2 
is, is, is still selling very well is because of the multiplayer aspects and also because the multiplayer is a lot of fun. They, I mean, they, they threw in arena fights and in the original Sen 2, which is something I, I didn't think I would enjoy. But then after playing like two or three matches, it's very addictive. And that's not even counting like going through the game, you know, with you, you know, your partner, your spouse, like a girlfriend, boyfriend, they, uh, being able to cooperatively go through an RPG experience, I think ends up adding a lot of strength to the, to, to the enjoyment. And I think fallout 76, um, as far as I've, as, as much as I've absorbed about it, like I don't know everything they revealed at QuakeCon, but, um, it didn't sound like they were going to stop doing like, you know, fallout five or fallout six. This was just a new element in the fallout universe, kind of like, uh, you know, go, going off on, it's, it's multiplayer on a, you know sort of by itself because uh, as I understand it there's actually no NPCs in the world it's just uh, you know terminals and logs that give you quests but you can still go on quests with your friends so I'm very curious to see how it will be received I think it'll probably be pretty successful um, but I don't think it will be the death of like you know uh, you know a Fallout 5 or you know other you know more single player RPGs it's I feel like it's more of a test bed to see how it could work and then it might be integrated in, in much future titles down the road but that would be speculation. So we've talked, we've covered a lot of genres. You've covered a lot of genres in your career. And I wanted to ask you if you don't, you know, if you don't mind, do some predictions for us. So genres tend to shift in popularity and they rise and fall. And right now, you know, post-apocalyptic and zombie and those genres are still really in. But I think uh, CD Projekt with cyberpunk is uh, not only tackling a new genre, but cyberpunk is also, I want to say it's coming back because it didn't really leave, but it's got some renewed popularity. Blade Runner helped with that. Yeah, Blade Runner. Um, do you? What do you think we're going to be talking about as major sort of genres in the next three, five, ten years? Like, what do you think is going to be popular or not? Okay, that's tough. So um, let me focus on zombies first. So about seven years ago. Um, I got to hear someone in uh, business development and business development is kind of the branch of, you know, game development where they try and sell entitled that they try and to try and sell projects to big companies or vice versa and, and get, and get projects rolling. So they do a lot of wheeling and dealing. Um, and this biz dev guy said that, um, the zombie genre was almost played out and it probably wasn't going to be as interesting as it was in, you know, two to three years. Now, it's quite it's quite a few quite a few years later and as as far as i can tell it's still going pretty strong so predictions can sometimes defy you and uh, the zombie genre has been has been one aspect of that um cyberpunk is a bit tricky um i i think i would be curious to know what the cyberpunk um reception would be if it wasn't cd project doing a cyberpunk game because as soon as you hear the Witcher 3 guys are doing something, that's a different sell than just, hey, um, there's a new cyberpunk game going out, if that, if that makes any sense. Like, you know that the CD Projekt guys are going to do something amazing with that. And if it's anything even remotely <laughs> like Witcher 3, then, you know, people are going to be on board because, you know, Witcher 3 was just a really quality RPG. Um, for the future, uh, I you know, um, I don't know if I really could say for sure. I, I will say I've been surprised by um, the growing reception and acceptance of D&D and superheroes because, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, um, there was no sure way to get beaten up and mentioning either one of those things in a sentence. So uh, geek culture was not quite celebrated in the 80s, but it is now. So seeing that that sort of sea change and then seeing uh, uh, both D&D and superheroes getting a wider popularity has been a real surprise to me. And I've been really happy to see that. Do you like, I mean, you mentioned something great about how the Divinity had co-op mode and D&D is more accepted. And you can really go on to Twitch and see any number of, you know, internet celebrities or actual celebrities on YouTube, such playing D&D as part of games like role play or critical role and things like that. As someone who's a fan of D&D, how much joy does that kind of bring you to be able to go in and see someone Twitch stream with their boyfriend or girlfriend uh, Divinity or see people like me who normally would not have touched D&D or known about it now playing it either subversively through the fact that the game is using D&D systems and they don't know it or it's just accepted and it's like this is this is actually the a crux of a lot of RPG games for the past 20 some years 
Well, uh, it's surprising to see, and then after surprise. Wow, a whole generation of you know uh, kids and adults who can play this game, and they don't have to worry. <laughs> they don't have to worry. It's actually it's actually accepted, and people think that hey, that's that, that's that's cool to do, and they're having a good time. And I, that's something that I always knew back in the back in the '80s. Like I really enjoyed playing these games. So seeing it be more accepted is is really great. The other aspect is. Um, uh, so when I watch Twitch streams of games I work on, I think I have a bit of a different perspective than other people watching because it's really hard not to see the flaws in your game. And also it's really hard to turn off the focus tester obser- observation mentality that a lot of game developers have when people play their games. Like they want to see what parts of the UI are confusing for a player or what secrets they missed in an area or where the where the level design got awkward. Like, hey, did you make a cul-de-sac in a level that takes 10 minutes to walk down? And then when you kill all the monsters, you have to walk 10 minutes back. Like you suddenly all those things become glaringly obvious. And you're like, damn. But then, so you're, you're sort of mentally taking notes while someone's playing to know what they're um, enjoying and what they aren't. And it sort of, sort of goes in your mental library. So it's, it's kind of hard to turn off critique mode, but it's also really gratifying when people are having a good time. So I wanted to ask you, um, we asked about Pathfinder in the beginning, but could you maybe go into some detail uh, on the, on Kingmaker, on the game you're working out on right now and, and, you know, what makes it different from other CRPGs and I don't know, just kind of go nuts about Pathfinder for a few minutes. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker is being done by Owlcat Studios. Um, they're they're pretty new to the RPG market, but they really love Pathfinder, and I'm guessing that's why they, they teamed up with Paizo. Um, so, so Pathfinder Kingmaker is based on a six-module series that Paizo published that was uh, uh, really well-loved by the fans. And um, Paizo does these things called Adventure Paths, where these, they have a string of modules that take, up, take players from, like, level 1 to level 20 through, like, one long continuous series of adventures and um uh the owlcat guys had been playing kingmaker across a number of different campaigns for a while before they even got the computer game opportunity so they grabbed a hold of that they asked if they could use kingmaker as sort of the foundation for the game so they took a lot of the elements from the adventure path and then they added uh uh, specific companions, companion stories. Uh, uh, they helped construct some elements about how to build your own kingdom in the game because that, that's one of the new things that uh, that Kingmaker brings to the uh, the isometric genre. They actually have a stronghold building mechanic, and I guess it's kind of spoilers in the title, like "Hey, Kingmaker." Well, you actually get to become like a king, and you actually get to build your kingdom. And there's a lot of political issues and uh, um, uh, legal issues you have to deal with in the game in terms of settling disputes and making sure that your neighbors don't suddenly invade and sort of doing your best to keep the peace while dealing with other threats that are affecting the kingdom. And um, Paizo was also cool with us adding more adventure content so the people that who had already played the pen and paper version would get new surprises um, and uh, they would still have some uh, some thrills and new stuff to experience uh, as they were playing the computer game. So yeah, it's coming out September 25th and uh, uh, I think it's going to be a really great game. I'm excited to play it. I will buy uh, any computer role-playing game. Don't care. I'll buy it. <laughs> and if you're working on it, then I'm really going to buy it. So we want to end uh, the podcast here with, uh, we call it the hardest question in the universe. Um, and we've asked it of everybody that's come on the show. So here's the question. I'm going to give you some stipulations about, about how the question goes. So um, I want to know what your absolute favorite game is of all time. You can't say a franchise. You can't say a series of games. You can't say a developer. You have to pick one game. Uh, and you can't think about it for too long. Go. Uh, so uh, it's a two-part question. Uh, in terms of the game, the fact that I love game and the game mechanics that it showed me about RPGs, Fallout 1 blew me away because you could talk your way through quests, which I'd never seen before in an RPG, and it was amazing to be able to talk down the bad guy at the end. It was the most amazing experience I've ever had. Um, in terms of a game that I purely loved like beyond the RPG genre, it was System Shock 2. I thought System Shock 2 was almost a design doc for how you should approach a game in that genre. I thought it was amazing. 
Well, you're normally only allowed to pick one, but you know, I'll allow. I'm it. not going to argue those with are, you. Those are two great games. You brought up a great point about how you could talk your way through quests. That's one of the reasons I started to fall in love with ZRPGs and just RPGs in general. Uh, anytime I have an opportunity to put my charisma up to ten at the start, I do it now because I yep. love to play these games with the mindset of I'm going to talk my way out of everything I possibly can. Um, so yeah, I, would, I would I would max out intelligence, max out charisma, and make sure my speech skill was super high. And then I'm like, I don't want to miss a thing because I I'm going to be the talky guy. <laughs> What's one of your favorite character builds in a CRPG? Like, because I always try weird ones just for fun. I'm curious if you've ever just tried anything strange or tried to break the game or just done something so overpowered. You were like, well, we need to go fix this. This is just something that we can't have this. Well, I did something that was underpowered uh, for Fallout 2 uh, while I was playing through it just for for playtesting. But I was but I was really enjoying the game while I was playing it. Um, and it's something that I wanted to do for Interplay's Fallout 3, which was codenamed Fallout Van Buren. And so Fallout had the three archetypes at that time where it was, you know, taught the talk, the speech character, uh, stealth boy, and then combat boy. But what I wanted to do after reading some post-apocalyptic fiction, especially, um, uh, I think it was Niven's, maybe it was uh, Lucifer's Hammer. I forget the author. Damn it. Um, but what was really interesting is that a lot of these post-apocalyptic stories would always have some variant of the of the you know, pre-war school teacher, but the pre-war school teacher knew how to make mustard gas and knew how to do harvesting and how to deal with crop crop rotation, things, a lot of things that would get lost. So basically, I thought there was room for doing a science boy style character in the Fallout universe. We're like, hey, I use tech and programming and mechanics to solve a lot of these quests uh, through just intellect and know-how. And um, that was going to be something we were going to introduce as a new so archetype. STEM boy. Yeah, STEM boy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And actually, that's now, and I, I feel comfortable saying that's now sort of an established archetype in Fallout now, in, in all of the Fallout games. I think so. Yeah, the um, I know in New Vegas that wasn't one of the archetypes we focused on, but uh, they may have done such in like Fallout Three and Fallout Four. But in New Vegas, we we didn't do that archetype, unfortunately. We we had opportunities where those those tech skills would matter, but um, the twist with Van Buren is that there were a lot more focused, uh, there were a lot more additional science skills you could do, and the crafting we could do with those is a lot different, and the programming and the ways you could modify your your Pip Boy. So basically like we tried to introduce new game mechanics that would also support that that's that science boy archetype um yeah so it was a lost opportunity still a little bit weepy about it i would have loved to have played it all right well hey chris thank you so much for coming on with us and uh taking our time to answer our questions and let rad kind of gush out about crpgs for some time here (laughs) yeah i appreciate it well thanks for having me on i really appreciate you guys yeah, and uh, we look forward to seeing uh, Pathfinder, Kingmaker, and practically everything else you're working on. Uh, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm looking forward to making really bad decisions in that game. That's like one of my <laughs> one of my hallmarks. And like people tell you, Mass Effect, I shot Rex, and it's been a point of contention with friends. And I still have to explain it, but I generally do choose the Renegade option. So I'm very excited about what havoc I can cause in your game. I I, I think bad choices make for the best stories. Yes, I agree. Thank you. I agree, too. Thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thank you, guys. All right. Take it easy, bud. Thank you again to Chris Avalone for joining us for that interview. Kingmaker is coming out on September 25th this year, so it's coming out next month. Check it out. Thank you so much for Chris for coming to talk to us about Pathfinder and his career in the video game industry. Rad, that was a great interview. What was some of your favorite parts of that? My favorite part was right at the end there when I asked him what his favorite game was, and he said Fallout 1. So first of all, his answer is, to me, perfectly spot on because that is also the first time I had ever played an RPG where you could talk your way out of the like say like the end boss fight and you can make the master self-destruct provided you've done things throughout the game to you know to line up all the conditions but also the idea that he really liked Fallout 1 and then got to work on Fallout 2 that's pretty cool yeah I'd have to say that you when you think about what your favorite game franchise is and if you could work on it you know things come to mind for me like the NHL series that must be really cool to be able to work on your favorite game franchise and be 
able to add to the story, especially when you saw a mechanic in that game that you'd never seen before and yeah. now you get to make use of. And in his games that he's done since then, uh, like that has actually been part of it. The idea that you can talk enemies out of doing things or doing things for you. So really cool to hear that from him. Moving on to some news, Xbox came out with some interesting news today about how they're going to be selling the Xbox going forward. They announced Xbox All Access. So what that is, is for 24 months, you would pay a monthly fee for two years of Xbox Live Gold, an Xbox One S one terabyte system, and two years of their Game Pass service, which includes all of the new releases from their first party studios that we saw announced at E3, uh, including games like We Happy Few. Um, really interesting because this is very similar to how phones are sold today. We haven't really seen this with game consoles. Rad, what's your first thoughts about this? I think it is a great way to make gaming accessible to people, uh, you know, video game playing accessible to people. Uh, I also think um, it's probably going to be met with some skepticism, but I think people eventually are going to see the, the value and the wisdom of like being able to provide games and consoles to people this way. Also, you know, I think they have a tremendous amount of confidence in their offering. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this. And I think that's they, they should have a tremendous amount of confidence in their offering. So it's interesting. I, I'm interested to see how it plays out. And I agree. And I think that really, when you look down at the numbers of it, what you're really looking at is for 24 months, you're paying $528 for an Xbox One S, um, Xbox Live Gold, which allows you to play online against everyone else, and two years of the Game Pass. That's nearly almost $700 worth of value. I just think that this is a great way to try to get your console into hands of people who maybe don't want to pay that price right up front or can't afford that price right up front. It's gaming more accessible to everybody. Yeah. Gives everybody a chance to play and learn and be part of the games community. I think it's a great thing. Um, good luck to them. I hope we see other consoles do this as well. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing that came up and it came up this afternoon was CD Projekt Red released Cyberpunk. the video. Yes, they released the video from E3 2018 that they showed behind closed doors. They streamed it on Twitch for the first time live to the general public and Cyberpunk got a reaction. Rad, your thoughts about seeing that for the first time now? Uh, I'm going to buy it. I think a lot of people have said That's that. My reaction. So in just a little background for people who aren't familiar with Cyberpunk or CD Projekt Red, they are the makers of the Witcher franchise that has been very successful. Their most recent game, which was The Witcher 3, uh, The Wild Hunt, had a great engine, came out, won all sorts well, of Game of the Years. Of just, awards, it, yeah. pretty, much, pretty much in 2016, won every Game of the Year yeah. award it could possibly win. Uh, they've since taken that engine, worked on it. They're now making Cyberpunk, which is a futuristic RPG, and people have not stopped talking about this since E3. Uh, I think it was going to, I think this game is going to scratch the open world itch for a lot of people, especially since it's a new setting. Um, you know, you see a lot of open world games that are uh, either medieval or fantasy or uh, sci-fi, but this is new. So, I'm man, I'm looking forward to this game. And I'm curious to see how it changes the strategy for others who are making games, because we always see runs when there's like zombie game comes out, there's a run on zombie games. When a RPG fantasy game comes out, there generally seems to be a run on that, and people tend to want to gravitate to those. I'm curious if we'll see a lot more cyberpunk sort of games coming out in the vein of System Shock or Deus Ex. Yeah, this is one of the questions I had for Chris, actually, was do we do we think that cyberpunk is going to be the next thing? And of course, it's always impossible to predict the future, but the cyberpunk setting, not, you know, not the game in particular, but the setting of cyberpunk, uh, who knows? Maybe it's, maybe it's going to open up a whole new genre and a whole new uh, setting for people to play in. And we'll definitely get to see some reactions from fans when yeah. we go out to PAX West this week. PAX West! Um, so we'll be out there. Rad and I are going to be out there doing our thing for ESA as well as doing a couple podcast interviews. So we'll have those episodes coming to you guys later this year and this month. But just wanted to put the flag out there that if you see either of us, I'm very tall, just look upwards and you'll probably find me or you'll find Rad's beautiful face out there. Come by, say hi. We'd love to talk to people. We'd love to know what you think about what we're doing, what we're doing with the podcast, and we'd love to talk about what we do at ESA. Any thoughts about what's coming on at PAX or what you want to tell people? Uh, just uh, everyone be nice to each other. Yeah. Let's all, right. all have a nice time. Let's be good and have a good weekend together. So last thing before we go, um, we've... I've got a little bit of a story to tell. Oh, yeah. you got to tell me about so, Fortnite with your dad. Yeah. My dad plays Fortnite now. 
um, I, I came home one day and I walked in and saw him playing Fortnite. What and is I, he playing it on? He's playing on the Xbox One and he's using a headset and he's uh, listening and trying to, he, he's got strategies. And this is actually, I thought, one of the best things. There's a great Simpsons episode where Bart teaches Homer to ride a motorcycle. And my dad and I very much have this relationship where when games come out, he wants to try them and I end up teaching him. But this was one of the neat times where I don't think he knows that I've played Fortnite before. I don't play it a ton, but I like the game. I know a lot of the strategies. I played a lot of Battle Royale games, so they're all very similar in how you go about it. And he sat down and he talked to me a little about some of his strategies that he uses to win in Fortnite. So he uh, hides in bushes. Well, actually, his, the thing you need to hear hey, is I, 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 came home, I came home and I said, he said he's playing Fortnite. And I said, how are you doing? He says, I'm currently 15th and I'm hiding in a bush. So hiding in bushes is a big strategy for him. He also likes to use uh, buildings to fly or to try to create choke points. And he was talking to me about choke points. And I just thought that was really endearing as someone who's played a lot of video games and understands the concept of choke points very well. So so um, if you get killed by someone hiding in a bush in this game, maybe it was Reed's dad. Could be my father. But then the next part was we played together. We went into the duo queue together and we played two matches. The first match, um, he wanted to get out at a certain point in the map because he knew there was things there he could pick up and use. Mm -hmm. And I accidentally hit the A button. So we parachuted out way earlier than anticipated, got into a shopping cart, ran around in the shopping cart till we both were eliminated and finished like 40th or 30th. The next time we played, um, I followed his directions. You know, I did, I was a good son, did what my dad said. And we finished in the top five. Oh, uh, we finished in top five. And this we, is why I, I watched him. Dad. I also watched him eliminate like three people crouched in the corner. He was camping. He was camping so hard. Um, and, but he did it. I, w I was really impressed. And so he's still playing Fortnite, and this might just be a running thing we talk about, because... Yeah. Reed's dad playing Fortnite. Reed's dad playing Fortnite. So, uh, feel free to hit us up on Twitter, and maybe someday I'll get him on Twitch, so we can do a little live version of that. Yeah, so Fortnite with my dad's been a thing, but we're getting to the end of the show here now, and I think it's about time for us to sign off. Yeah, I want to say big thanks again to Chris for coming on the show. We had a really good conversation, talked about some really interesting stuff, and... We're getting to the end of the show here, though? Yeah, I, I want to say thanks again to Chris for coming on the show. Awesome conversation. Uh, if you go on his Wikipedia page and look, and this is something we mentioned in the interview, but go on his page and look at how many games that he's made that have ended up on somebody's top 10 list. Uh, it's nothing to sneeze at. So we're really looking forward to Pathfinder Kingmaker coming out September 25th. Going to be playing that the day it drops. And uh, I'll see you guys at PAX, maybe. See you guys at PAX. Feel free to reach out to us. Check us out at the ESA on Twitter or check Rad and I out on Twitter at Reed S. Albers and at Rad underscore ESA. And we'll see you guys around. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.